Regrets. We all have them. Whether it be something from last week, last year, or decades ago, we long to make things right, to change direction, to begin again. The good news is this. You can start over. You can actually learn to love your regrets. Well, good morning. Uh, it's great to be with you all. My name is John Prine. For any who don't know me, it is uh, wonderful to have you, especially if this is your first time with us. I know the last few weeks we've had a lot of new people showing up, and so really excited for the dinner tonight for any who are interested, able to join us. I know we've had a fair amount signing up, but please do come talk to us if you're interested in connecting more. Um, we're in week five of a series that I would say has been a, a really significant series for us. We've been talking these last five weeks about what it means to start over, uh, what it looks like to be invited into this journey, this process, which if we're all being honest, we probably all long for, this ability to actually stop and face these disappointments, these regrets, and be able to begin our life in a new or significantly new way. As I've been thinking about this journey, I actually was drawn to a musical that's come out in the last 10 years. Now, this could be new information for some of you. I love musicals. Anyone, anyone want to get a little resonance? There's a little, there's some musical love. I figured there was. We're a city church. Uh, now, some of you may not yet be informed. Uh, some of you may even be as I once was, uh, formerly in my high school days, where I thought musicals were all flash and fluff and non-serious stuff. Uh, inevitably, it was, of course, my wife, uh, who's right down here, who introduced me to the joy and the power of music, musicals, musical theater. Um, but recently, one that actually has been here in Chicago is I just saw coming back this December and has also been made into a movie recently. It's called Dear Evan Hansen. Has anyone gotten a chance to see Dear Evan Hansen? So if you haven't, Dear Evan Hansen is the story of a teenage boy that sort of we find opens the scene uh, with him in deep distress. Uh, he's socially anxious. He's living with his mom. Uh, he's just an awkward, uncomfortable, sort of tormented high school teenage boy. And his psychologist has been working with him and has been encouraging him to write these letters that begin, Dear Evan Hansen. It's a letter to himself. And at the end, he always signs it, Sincerely Me. But as the play begins, the first day of school, which inevitably, if you go back to your high school days, is never a really enjoyable day, that first day back to school. Dear Evan, Han or Evan Hansen is writing one of these letters to himself, Dear Evan Hansen, and instead of it being a positive letter encouraging him to start the day strong, it starts to tip very south. It starts to be filled with all of the angst and the disappointment and the regrets that Evan is living with. And as he goes to print the letter and pick up the letter, another boy named Connor is there, happens to see the letter, which embarrasses Evan further. Connor ends up running off with the letter. And then tragically, the way the play really begins is that Connor that very day would commit suicide and in committing suicide would have this letter from Evan Hansen on him, making it seem as if he, Connor, had written the letter to Evan and the intimacy of the letter makes it look like these two are best friends. So Evan begins this play in this moment of decision. What is he going to do when confronted with this terrible, uncomfortable, sort of overwhelming situation? Well, as people start asking him about their friendship, as Connor is starting to be grieved and mourned, as the whole community starts to gather around Evan, 
Evan starts to realize he is popular now in ways that he's never been popular. He's being embraced now by his high school and his community in ways he's never been embraced. And instead of resisting or facing these lies that are starting to build, he just goes along with it. And as I'm sure you can guess, inevitably, as the play builds, you start to sense more and more what is going to happen when this all comes crashing down around him. I'm struck as I've been thinking about Evan Hansen and was just saw that it's coming back to Chicago. I'm struck that he's actually a perfect example of what we've been talking about here in Starting Over. We've been calling it the sorry cycle, if you've been with us these last five weeks. Because what happens with our regrets is it's never just the one decision that becomes the devastation in our lives. Instead, the sorry cycle is about how regrets of action, regrets of inaction, regrets of reaction, start to compound on themselves. We start moving back and forth where our longings, these deep longings that we're looking for, I mean, Evan is longing to be accepted, he's longing to be popular, he's longing to be embraced, start to lead to more and more and more regrets until they start building on themselves in such a way that to face one regret means you have to face all of the regrets. And if you start confronting all of the regrets, well, now you're going to have to start being honest about the ways that you've hurt others the ways that others have hurt you, the ways that maybe you've even hurt yourself. What we need in this cycle, this sorry cycle, is a chance to start over. If you know the play about Evan Hansen, I'll talk about it a little more towards the end of the sermon. It beautifully crescendos and collapses in the moment when Evan finally has to confront all of his lying and all of his longing together. And it's not pretty, it's not easy, but you sense in Dear Evan Hansen, it is so important, necessary, and good. I wonder for you, as you're coming in this morning, as we've been talking these last five weeks about the sorry cycle, I wonder what's been stirring in you when it comes to your regrets. Where has God been speaking or sifting or inviting you to take that very terrifying step to actually face your regrets, to start over? We're going to talk about one person this morning in the New Testament who actually uh, we may not often associate with starting over and with a life filled with regrets, and that's the Apostle Paul. For those of you who know Paul's story, he began in the book of Acts not as Paul but as Saul. We'll see if we can get the passage up on the screen here. If we can't, this is going to be from Acts chapter 9. Here we go, and you can go ahead and pull out your Bibles and look along with me if you'd like, but we'll have it up here. In Acts chapter 9, we discover Saul is a very vengeful, passionate follower of Judaism who has been so consumed in his anger and rage at what this new sect of people following Jesus have been doing that he's begun working hard, collaborating with the authorities in order to personally see that these sects would be stamped out across Israel. In fact, we find here in verse 1, Saul, still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples, uh, goes to the high priest and asks him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Again, I don't know how often you've sat with this portrait of the Apostle Paul, who at this point is called Saul, we discover a couple of interesting things about him historically, even just from this one verse. I mean, clearly, 
Saul is passionate enough that he is willing to exert violence in order to enact, to follow through on his beliefs. This is a person who is convicted, who is focused, and who in some way is likely angry about what the threat this group of peoples represents is to him. Yet, he's not just angry and passionate and vengeful. Saul is connected. <laughs> Do you notice that? Like, Saul has access to the high priest, which at this point in Jerusalem is the most powerful religious figure with a ton of political sway. And he has such access to him that he can personally get letters from the high priest so that he can be commissioned to go up to Damascus, which was about 130 miles away from Jerusalem. It was a pretty significant town outside of Israel in what is present-day Syria. And Damascus had a large group of Jewish people there, but it wasn't technically part of Israel. This is extradition. This is a hit job where Saul is going across the borders in order to bring Jewish people back as prisoners because they are following this way. I mean, this is a man who is truly, truly focused on this violent task. As Saul is on this way, something very interesting is going to happen to him. You've possibly heard this story again, but the details I just find to be moving and beautiful, and I want to specifically draw your attention to three, three details in what happens to Saul on this road. You notice in verse 3, as he nears Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. A bright and overwhelming light is going to surround Saul. We're going to hear just a few verses later that this light is so severe that Saul will be struck blind for three days. So Saul, on the road, is first blinded by the light. I, I've just been sitting with this this week, and I can't help but love the irony, if you think about this for just a minute. Here is Saul, who is passionate and convicted. Saul knows exactly why he is doing what he is doing. In fact, my hunch is if you talk to Saul, we've all met people like Saul. If you were to talk to Saul at this point, he would probably view himself with an air of self-righteousness, maybe pretentiousness. We know Saul is highly educated. He's highly intelligent. I mean, for Saul, Saul believes he sees the world rightly, doesn't he? Saul thinks when he looks, he knows exactly what's going on in this world around him. And yet here, the first thing Jesus does to disrupt Saul is blinds him. It shows him that his eyes are not actually working and that he has actually not been seeing the light, which is in fact all around him. What happens next? As the light flashes from heaven, verse 4, Saul's going to fall to the ground and hears a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, I love the second detail to note is that a voice calls Saul's name. I don't know about you, I have never yet in my life heard an auditory voice from heaven call my name. I think I would be a little disrupted by that. I'm guessing you would too. Uh, you maybe even potentially be concerned by it, which I think is a fair assessment as well. But think about what this signifies to Saul as he's struck like lights around him and this voice calls to him. And what does the voice begin with? begins with his name, Saul. Saul. I just love how personal this is. 
It's like heaven is reminding Saul that God knows everywhere Saul has been. He knows everything Saul has been thinking. He knows exactly where Saul is going and what Saul is intending to do. I think as we think about these moments in starting over, of truly being caught in this sorry cycle, don't we need a voice from heaven to call our name and get our attention? Like so often, the longing regret spiral is because we feel like we are totally isolated, totally alone, and for many of us, whether it's Evan Hansen, who's wretchedly socially anxious, lonely, isolated, or those like Saul, who's, who's wretchedly angry and violent and working out his own vision for the world, what we need is a voice to remind us, hey, Saul, hey, Evan, you're not actually alone. But then notice finally what this voice is going to say to Saul. The most striking thing that's revealed to him comes at the end of verse 4. We can throw this back up on the screen if you have it, Lane. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? If you sit with this line for just a minute, it reveals to Saul what I'm going to call a moment of involvement. A moment of involvement with Jesus. This is Jesus' voice speaking. That's what we'll discover in verse 5. And Jesus is saying to Saul, when you persecute them, Saul, you are persecuting me. You are persecuting the Son of God. You are persecuting the one who was died, crucified. Saul, when you enact vengeance and find blood on your hands for the violence you've been using, that blood is actually my blood. I, Jesus, am there when you persecute them. I mean, I think if you are Saul in this moment, there had to be a terror dawning on you. This is the equivalent of committing a crime, which never is something I would recommend you to do, and yet realizing the crime you've committed is actually against the most important person in town who has the authority and ability to, to take it back on you, uh, to take back what was theirs. Yet here, Saul is going to discover not only is Jesus involved with the ones that he's been persecuting, but do you hear how Jesus is involved with Saul? Jesus is actually here in this moment with Saul, in his blindness, in his voice being spoken. And Jesus is saying, Saul, this is the moment where I am not only there with them, I am also here with you. Why do you persecute me? This moment in Saul's life, is going to undeniably change the trajectory of his entire being. In fact, I was reading a historian who was noting, just from a historical standpoint, while scholars debate various aspects of who the Apostle Paul was, uh, what his motivations were, everyone is very clear. Paul believes he met Jesus on this road, and that Jesus spoke to him and said, Saul, you cannot continue persecuting them without realizing you're persecuting me. And that this insight for Paul would change everything about the way that he approached his life. In fact, I love that Paul, if you read Paul, Paul is going to start talking now over and over and over again, not just about what he had done in his past, but now who Jesus was with him in the present. In fact, Paul is going to say some very remarkable things 
uh, for those who were with us this summer as we talked about the book of Philippians, Paul's going to go so far as to say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Do you notice that like Jesus' involvement in Paul's life doesn't just stop on this moment on the road. Instead, what Paul realizes is like, Jesus is now with me always. In fact, I am with Jesus as Jesus is in me. Paul will go so far as to say, the life I live, I now no longer live in the flesh, but is a life I now live in Jesus by faith in the Son of God. Paul is so overwhelmed by Jesus' involvement in his life that he now realizes there is nowhere he can go where Jesus is not with him. I just think for us, if we were to take seriously this invitation of involvement in our regrets, I wonder how Jesus' involvement with you might actually change everything. Not just about how you remember what happened in the past, but how you walk forward with Jesus into the present. As we've been talking about this, we, we have kind of a simple framing we've been working through with you that I want to close this week in our starting over cycle. We've talked about Paul now moving from a sorry cycle where regret and longing are spiraling into a starting over cycle. What happens in this starting over cycle is that Paul first is going to be invited to recognize his regrets. Jesus' voice invites him to take full ownership, full awareness, full accountability for the ways that Saul has been harming Jesus, even as Saul has been harming himself this whole time. And yet Jesus doesn't leave him here. Instead, as Jesus invites Saul forward, Jesus is going to invite Saul now to release these regrets. We'll look in just a second at how Jesus does this. But it's not just enough to recognize and release. Instead, God actually, in this starting over loop, is going to begin to work from the very source of your regrets a new kind of redemption. This is the final R, to redeem our regrets. How does this work in Paul's life? Well, amazingly, Paul, instead of avoiding this story of his regrets, uh, if I were Paul, I don't think I would talk very much about all of the persecution I had been doing of those who I now lived and worked and breathed alongside. But Paul, strangely, is going to tell this story over and over and over again. In fact, we're going to throw up here the numerous places Paul is going to tell what happened to him on this road over and over again. Acts 22, Acts 26, 1 Corinthians 15, Galatians 1, Philippians 3. All of these have Paul recollecting, like he just needs to go back and go back and find it again. Uh, if we look at one of these in Acts 22, we're going to see these three stages from recognize, release, and redeem. Thank you. We're all right. Uh, this is now Acts 22. Look, as Paul is recounting his story, what happened to him on the road, this is what he says. I, I, Paul, persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women, throwing them into prison as the high priest and all the council can themselves testify. I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. I mean, Paul's owning it. Paul's acknowledging it. Paul's like, this is who I was. These regrets were real. This did happen. This is the mistakes I wish I never could return to. Yet, Paul doesn't just stay there in the recognition. 
he's going to move forward into his, a story of his release. This is now Acts twenty-two sixteen. He says that the voice of Jesus said to him, Now, Paul, what are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized. Wash your sins away, calling on Jesus' name. If you've been with us these last few weeks, we've talked about this moment of release, that this is, this is actually the good news of Jesus. It doesn't just leave you with all of your regrets stacked high. Instead, Jesus, through even this sign of baptism, which we as a church family are going to be doing this next week, in baptism, Paul is going to receive the washing of his body to remind him that he has been cleansed now in Jesus. Yet, Jesus does not just leave here at release. Instead, Acts 22 closes Paul's story, his recollection, by naming where God sent him to. God's going to say to Paul, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now, there's a little bit of irony here, if you think about Paul for just a second. What was Paul most passionate about? He was most passionate in his early days as Saul about protecting the purity of the Jewish people. He wanted to keep and to cleanse and to make sure that no, no religious sect, none of these crazy claims about Jesus dying and rising from the dead could contaminate an otherwise pure Jewish religion. And so God is going to take him as this intense protector and he's going to send him out to the very people that Saul would have believed were contaminants in the world. And now Saul is going to get to go to these Gentiles and he's going to open up to them how just in, his, in the very seat of his regrets where he thought the door was closed to all outsiders, now the doors have been thrown open so that even the Gentiles, as Paul will say over and over and over again, are invited in with nothing but faith as the entry into the love and grace of God. If you think about Paul in this starting over loop, he moves from a sorry cycle of regrets and longings into this profound new freedom where the very sight of his regrets is what is propelling his story forward to share over and over again what God has done for him. I think two contemporary stories that come to mind as I think about this movement from a sorry cycle to a starting over cycle. One is the author Anne Lamont. If any of you had a chance to read Anne Lamont's story? I love Anne Lamont because she was a Guggenheim Fellowship recipient in the 1980s. She is a profound novelist, would describe herself as a social activist, a progressive, a leftist. I mean, she was as far from any sort of thing as organized religion that a person could be, and she was atheist through her whole life. But in her 30s, she found herself broken, divorced, alcoholic, and miserable. And a friend started talking to her about Jesus which she thought was, of course, a load of nonsense. And yet Anne Lamont, in her telling of the story at the age of 30, found herself wavering outside of an Alcoholics Anonymous group. And she'd been just enough to know that if she was going to commit to this recovery process, she was going to have to claim a higher power. And if she was going to meet a higher power, she, she was sensing in this moment it was going to be Jesus. And as Anne Lamont tells it, she, she actually was quite angry about it. <laughs> in fact, uh, infamously, these are Anne's words, not mine. Uh, Anne stood outside of the church and apparently said, F it, <laughs> I'm going in. And that was her journey into following Jesus. I, I just love what a messy saint Anne Lamont is, isn't she? And yet this is a quote from her. She says, 
I do not at all understand the mystery of grace, only that it meets us where we are but does not leave us where it found us. If Anne is one story of this beautiful starting over process, finally recognizing, releasing, and now being redeemed. I mean, her novels have been the source of grace and beauty and inspiration for countless people all over the world. Um, another one that I, I really love is the R&B artist Lecrae. Does anyone here know Lecrae's work? Follow Lecrae. Um, Lecrae, again, is just this incredible story. He grew up down south in Texas, I think, and um, was living on the streets. Both of his parents were basically gone. His grandmother was involved in his life, tried to take him to church, and yet Lecrae was angry. He was frustrated. He loved rap music. He said for him, rappers were the only source, sort of like masculine presence in his life that he could look up to, and so he wanted to imitate them, but he found himself inevitably on the streets. He was dealing drugs. At one point, he was taken to juvie, and finally, finally, as he was going through this process, he says in, as a late teenager, he was just starting to sense God was chasing him, and he was kind of resisting it. And as he was driving one day, uh, he hit a curb and flipped his car. And he says in that moment, it was much like Saul on the road, a great disruption. He found that his whole life could be gone in just a flash. And yet in this very moment, he says he heard Jesus speaking to him, and that Jesus was saying, Lecrae, I want your life to be mine. Lecrae since has been a Christian rapper, recording artist. I mean, he's, he's done incredible things with Grammys and all the rest. But what I love most about Lecrae is that he lives a life acknowledging that he had many regrets, and yet it's the very source of his regrets that have become the movement of redemption. His quote, quite simply, is, Our scars show others that we know a healer. If you've got these stories of starting over, one that we've been tracking over these last few weeks, if you've been with us, is a man by the name of Greg. Uh, Greg was out at our Naperville location and found himself deeply <laughs> broken in, a, in a, just a series of uh, recovery and rehab projects. He, he was working through all of his pain. He would be the first to tell you he would go to rehab, and he would get clean, and then he'd get broken again, and uh, Community Christian Church was actually part of that process and was in the mess with him, and yet it was incredibly painful, incredibly difficult, and yet he shared with us last week the moment that really broke things open for him was this moment of release where he realized he could not control his future, and he needed to just let God be and take him wherever his future was going to go. So actually, these films that we've had with Greg, the interview we did with him, were a couple years old. So we did this interview four or five years ago. And the joy of moving into this Starting Over series was going back to Greg and asking him if we could have a follow-up conversation from his story, how he's been doing the last five years. So in a fun way, I'd love to share with you, this is our lead pastor, Dave Ferguson, having a chat with Greg about where he is and what he's been doing these last five or six years. You know, I think one of the things, Greg, that made your story really just very compelling was just how brutally honest you were about your own struggles with addictions um, and just the way you just authentically shared it. As you kind of look back, what, what were some of the keys for you in kind of breaking the cycle and starting over? I remember one time um, one of your old pastors, Sean, shared with me uh, the story of Paul when I was just just you know, dying on the inside in regret. And he explained to me 
the life that he had led, persecuting others and hurting others, and how uh, now he wrote half the Bible, right? So, uh, and he's using that to help save lives. And, and that was a turning point for me that maybe, just maybe the pain and the hurt and the regret and the bad things could end up being something good. Um, so I'd say turning toward that and then candidly finding others to help hold my hand while I walked out of it was the biggest help. Have those regrets kind of haunted you in any way? Have they come back and like, it, what do you what do you do then? Because it, it probably isn't quite as tidy as like a three minute video. <laughs> no, no, it's never as, as clean as, hey, this happened and now everything's wonderful forever. It's been well over a decade, right? Since since the, the, the darkest moments of my life in addiction. And one thing that's stayed pretty consistent uh, throughout that time is is I've, I've been able to to I guess let let God work through me and with me to help me turn to help others whether it's in recovery meetings or folks in the church I meet I see today that it's precisely this my mistakes my pains my screw-ups um, the things I didn't do well that have become the biggest thing in the world that helps me be a blessing to others. I am uniquely, God uses that, uses you in those moments to be uniquely qualified to help someone who's suffering similarly when no one else can, and we need you. So get unstuck, <laughs> let, let, let God work. Yeah, that's yeah. right, that's good. I wanna go back a little bit too, because I know a, a pivotal moment for you was that happened at community, and that was a place where you, you know, really said yes to Jesus. Uh, you found your way back to God and you were, you were baptized. What, what are your, some of your memories surrounding uh, that moment? It was one of the more impactful moments of my life. Uh, it truly felt like it was, it was letting go of all holding on to the past and turning to God and saying, all right, I am, I am yours and, um, and I will follow you and thank you, everything all wrapped up in one. And so uh, I'll never forget the day. What would you say to those folks who are like thinking about, wow, should I go all in with Jesus? Should I make that kind of a public commitment to be baptized? I would say, what are you waiting for? Um, I, for me, it was this moment of, of, even though there was hesitation, the, the, the quiet voice said, you're here for a reason and you're thinking about this for a reason, and that reason is you know there's something bigger than what you're currently doing. There's there's more to life than the way you're living, and baptism for me was that official step into this entire new life that I found uh, through following Jesus. So I'd say do it, and do it now. <laughs> Don't wait. That's so beautiful, isn't it? I mean, I, I think it can sometimes be easy for us to miss that these stories of redemption are all around us, are actually here in this very room, and that we have a story to share. I think this is some of what Paul models to us, and this is some of what we as a community are going to be doing next week. We're going to get a chance to share stories of how God has been moving here in our midst and helping each of us start over. Uh, but to begin that process, I just want to reflect on my own story and just uh, the moment that came to mind for me. This was not as dramatic as uh, 
addiction, addiction recovery process. Um, but I mentioned Dear Evan Hansen at the start because, ironically, uh, when I first heard Dear Evan Hansen, I was 27, a couple years ago, and I was just in the midst of experiencing a prolonged season of deep brokenness within my family. Uh, there was a lot going on. As we've talked about regrets of action, there were some things that I had done that I was certainly disappointed with. Uh, regrets of inaction, there were things that I was not doing. In fact, at that point, I was mostly avoiding, was mostly not talking to several significant members of my family. And then there were also many regrets of reaction, just experiencing like a deep sense of distress from all of the pain and the disappointment I was walking through at this season as my family had basically fragmented and was sort of off doing their own thing. And so as I was listening to this uh, musical with my wife, Dear Evan Hansen, and was sitting in the story of this 17-year-old boy who was doing everything he could to hide <laughs> from the pressures, hide in the sort of happy image that he maybe, just maybe, could build and construct of himself, I just was struck by the weight that this was me, that I was still that scared 17-year-old boy, that I'd been running from different problems that had come up in my family. And as I, ironically, and I, I'm not even joking about this, as I was painting a fence, I had a fence at that point, I was painting it, I had this moment with Jesus where I heard Jesus saying to me, it's time, it's time for you to engage your family. And so uh, that resulted in me facing this stockpile of regrets, like getting on a plane, flying out to where my family was over on the West Coast, sitting down with individual members of my family, beginning to face and acknowledge some of the things I had done and draw attention to things that I was hurting around. And my point in sharing the story is not that this is the most dramatic, <laughs> the most devastating, the most broken story you will ever hear in this community. My point is to say, I saw in that moment that Jesus was involved with me in all of my regrets, and I heard Jesus saying, maybe, just maybe, we could begin to redeem all of these regrets and that your calling and ministry will involve the very brokenness you're coming out from. Uh, we've had this fence over here this whole time. You've maybe been wondering why uh, we've had this fence. I think it, it helpfully represents a barrier, an obstacle to our regrets, represents the things that we're holding on to, the things that we're choosing not to face. If you remember a couple weeks ago, uh, many of us, I see about 20 or 30 of them up here, came up and put a symbol of something that is a regret here on this wall. And this morning, if there's any good news to offer to you, it is that Jesus wants to invite you to start over. Jesus is involved with you in this wall and he wants to help move with you beyond it. He wants to redeem your regrets. And he wants to use even those regrets to become the good news you're now going to share with others. So this week, as I share my story with you, I dangerously have paint exposed <laughs> here in Lincoln Hall. I don't know that Lincoln Hall knows this. Uh, and I'm going to just begin this process. Begin the joy that Jesus offers as we are invited to recognize our regrets, as we are invited to release our regrets, and as we begin to start over. We're going to finish painting this wall next week, but for now, may this white be a sign to you that Jesus wants to redeem your regrets.